Today, we're in Psalm 57. Let me give you kind of a plan moving forward. Next week, we're going to be in Psalm 59. Weird. Why is that? I'm skipping Psalm 58. Not because I don't like Psalm 58. It's a great psalm. But I'm going to get caught back up to my psalm group that I've been meeting with this summer. We we didn't lose a week. We had a great week last week with the Portugal team sharing their story. Um, So we didn't do a psalm that Sunday. So I want to get caught back up with my psalm team. So... Today it's Psalm 57, next Sunday Psalm 59, and then going through Memorial Day weekend through Psalm 61. That's kind of the looking ahead where we're going to go. And then after Psalm 61, we're going to take a break, go into the book of Acts. Um, That'll be our next step. Luke part two. I did Luke last year. Acts is really Luke part two. So we're going to do Acts in the fall. So that's just kind of a heads up. I miss being up here. I love preaching. I really do. Um, But I also love vacation. So it was good to be away for a couple weeks. Uh, The first weekend was the family camp out at Cape Lookout. Had a fantastic time at the church, enjoying the sunshine and the beach and all the fellowship there. And then last Sunday I was here and the Portugal team shared their story of what God did through their lives in Portugal. And that was beautiful and well done. I like to take time off for two reasons. Number one is it gives me just kind of a chance to, you know, clear my head, take a little break, decompress, whatever you want to call it, go on a vacation. But really the bigger reason for me is I like to have the opportunity for other people to speak, for you to hear God's word from another voice. And I think that's important because if I were to preach every Sunday, trust me, you would get tired of me, and hopefully you don't get tired of me, but I like giving you a break from me and letting other people speak because there's some really qualified people that can do that, and I appreciate Brother Phil preaching for me a couple weeks ago. He preached on Psalm 56 and did a fantastic job. I got to listen to it online, and by the way, you can listen online. If you're away on vacation, as a lot of people are today, I know that, a lot of people out of town today, and throughout the summer, you can always listen online, clackamasbible.org. Psalm 57, I want to start with our focus on the heading to Psalm 57. Now, what's interesting about these headings, and Phil mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I'm glad he did, because oftentimes we go, oh, there's just a few scattered words up there at the top, and then we'll start reading starting in verse 1. Well, in Hebrew Scripture, the heading that is in our Bibles above the chapter is there, verse 1. So in, in the Hebrew Scripture, Old Testament, they start verse 1 with a heading, and they have 12 verses then in this chapter rather than 11. So Phil mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but those headings were not added on later. They were part of the original text, and they're important. So I wanted to point out three things about the heading uh, today. Number one, it says up there, do not destroy. That's weird. This is the first of three psalms in a row, starting with 57, going through 59, that have this in their heading. So what what is that all about? Well, most of Bible scholars believe that it was a well-known proverb or a saying that was just around during that time, and they put a tune to it. And then David took that tune and wrote wrote a psalm. So he kind of took something that was well-known, a tune, maybe a saying, and he wrote this psalm, put the words into it along, to, along with it. 
I found this in one of the commentaries. I wanted to read it. It says, the inscription, do not destroy, may relate to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 9.26. What's that? Do not destroy them, God. He had come down from the mountain. His people had made a golden calf. So he pleads with God, do not destroy my people, Lord. Have mercy upon them. Do not destroy. Or maybe it's a reference to 1 Samuel 26.9, David's words about King Saul. David, the anointed king, said, I will not lift my hand. I will not destroy God's anointed. Saul was officially the king still, and he said, I will not destroy him. So maybe it's a reference to 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, or, and this, brought, this is really interesting, it says, or more likely to the words of a song recorded in Isaiah 65, verse 8. And here's what the, song, the Isaiah says. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and do not destroy them all. Marvin Tate, one of the commentators, explains. He says, the do not destroy expression seems to have been a popular saying or proverb which reflected the idea of a vineyard keeper refusing to destroy grapevines when the first clusters of grapes were bad. The vines still had the blessing of life in them and a potential for future production. Like the vines, Israel had brought forth the grapes worthy of destruction. They were bad grapes. But Yahweh would not destroy Israel because she still contained a blessing, that potential of life in them. Do not destroy, God. So that's important to consider as we read this psalm. The second thing mentioned there, it's a mikdom. Now, Phil, two weeks ago, mentioned this with Psalm 56. It starts there and goes through Psalm 60, and you'll see mikdom in each of the headings going up through Psalm 60, and then there's one in Psalm 16. Most of the commentaries were like, we have no idea what this means. So that's probably a good help, but some ideas there. The word literally means golden, this idea it's golden. And in the Septuagint, the word referred to something inscribed. It's something of value. It's golden. It's inscribed. It's kind of like what God encourages people to do in Deuteronomy 6. Inscribe these words that I've told you today on the doorposts of your house. They're valuable. They're golden. Inscribe them. Keep God's word in your heart. Inscribe God's word in your heart because it's valuable. It's golden. So we could take it that direction, but really we don't know. So it's just a guess on my part. But it does, the third thing it mentions is there's a reference to David's life. And this is similar to other psalms that we've seen this summer. There's an incident that had occurred, and it says simply, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Now we know from 1 Samuel, in verse 22 and 24, there were two times where David had to flee into a cave. In the first instance, in chapter 22, the cave of Adullam, he was in the cave, and a group of people and his family members came there and encouraged him. He was there in hiding, but he was fleeing more in that situation from the Philistines. And he got out of town and he, and he ran to a cave. That was chapter 22. In chapter 24, in Gedi, 
It's a region, a desert region, that had a lot of these caves. Now, this is an actual picture from the Holy Land of a place where maybe, maybe David found refuge when he was running from Saul, literally running from Saul. And this is the story where he's actually in the back of the cave. It's very dark. Saul actually comes in, it says, to relieve himself. Sorry, but it's true. It's part of the story. And David hides in the back, and all his men are saying to him, hey, here's your chance to kill this guy. It's dark. He's all by himself. He did something very stupid. He came into this cave all by himself. Let's take him out right now. David's words are, do not destroy. This is God's anointed. I'm not going to do that. And he just cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and lets Saul go out. And then he approaches Saul with a piece of his robe and says, hey, I had the chance to take your life, but I didn't. And that's the story in 1 Samuel 24 of the cave. And I think most likely that's probably the reference here. We don't know specific. And there were probably other times where David hid in caves. That was what he was doing out there in the wilderness, running for his life from Saul. And there were probably other times where he was in caves. I don't know about you. I don't like caves. Now... There's some of you that like to spelunk, and you actually look for opportunities to do that sort of thing. I would just as soon not go into a cave. To me, they're dark, damp, they're crowded, they're confining, they're isolating. There's nothing inviting about a cave in my mind. And I want you to think about it in a sense today. Maybe you're in a cave in your life. You feel dark, depressed, isolated, confined, all of those things right now today. And you can begin to understand what David was feeling as he was in this cave hiding for his life. You know, David was probably thinking, God, you had me anointed. (laughs) I know I'm to be your king. But what's going on right now? I'm in the middle of this cave. I'm in this dark place. I'm running for my life. There's people out there trying to kill me. What are you doing, God? And I think asking God why is not the right question. I think a better question is what? God, what? What are you doing? Because the reality is there's going to be times where we will never know We will never know the why, and maybe it's okay because we can trust Him. But I think a better question to be asking God is, what? What is going on? What do you want in this situation? Elizabeth Elliot, many of you know that name, right? Elizabeth Elliot lost her first husband, Jim, when he and four other men were martyred as they tried to take the gospel to the hostile Aka tribe. She lost her second husband, Addison Leitch, to cancer. In an address to the Urbana Missions Conference in December of 76, she told of being in Wales and watching a shepherd and his dog. The dog would herd the sheep up a ramp and into a tank of antiseptic in which they had to be bathed to protect them from the parasites. As soon as they would come up out of the tank, the shepherd would grab the rams by the horns and fling them back into the tank and hold them under the antiseptic for a few more seconds. Miss Elliot asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood what was happening. They haven't got a clue, 
she said. Mrs. Elliot, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And he didn't give a hint of explanation. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've been there. The shepherd you trusted threw you into some circumstances that were quite unpleasant, and you didn't have a clue as to why he was doing it. So why isn't the question, what? What do you want, Lord? And we know that what God wants is his glory. He wants to be glorified in us. That's what he wants. That's his desire. The main idea in this chapter that we're going to see today is God's glory should always be our aim, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Men's retreat, does that sound familiar? Dr. Sam Baker, that was our theme verse for the retreat that we went on. Whatever you do, do it all for Him, all for His glory. That's what God wants. That's what God is up to. So let's look today. God is glorified when we trust Him in our trials, verses 1 through 6. Let's read that together. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell amongst ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Isn't that a beautiful passage. God is glorified as we trust Him in our trials. Verse 1 speaks about trusting God alone. He says, have mercy on me, God, and he says it two times. It's like he's saying, be merciful, God, now. He's emphatic. I need your mercy right now. Please don't put it off anymore. David understands two things. Number one, it's not about human merit. When he calls out for God's mercy, what he's calling out is for God's graciousness, his unmerited favor. In fact, he's saying, God, give me the opposite of what I deserve. That's really what mercy is. It's withholding something that I really do deserve, but God is a gracious God, and so he withholds that from me. Be gracious to me, God. I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to merit this. It's unmerited. But it's also not with human means. In you, I take refuge. And he repeats that two times. There's nothing I can do, God. It's not by anything that I can accomplish on my own. It's in you I'm going to take refuge. Not in a cave, although he was hiding in there. But God, it's really you I'm taking refuge in right now. 
Now, there's something that we miss in English that is there in the Hebrew language, and it's the word refuge. It's used two times. The first time the word refuge is used, it's in perfect form, which means it's a completed action, and it's in the past. He's saying, in you my soul has found refuge. In the past, God, I've gone to you, and it's a done deal. I've found refuge in you. So it's in the perfect form. The second time the word is used, it's imperfect form. It's something that is continuous. So he's saying, in you my soul will continue to take refuge. I want you to think about it in this terms. It's similar to our faith in God and our trust in Him as our Savior. We can say in the past perfect form, we trusted Christ as our Savior. If we are believers today in the past, we put our trust in Him, it's a done deal, and it's perfect, it's completed. However, we need to say and we need to understand our trust is an ongoing, continual thing. So we need to understand, yeah, I put my trust in God, He is my Savior, but you know what? Every day, 24-7, when I get up, continually trusting Him. He is my refuge. He will continue to be my refuge. Amen? That's our, that's our story, isn't it, as Christians? He says, where am I going to go? Shadow of your wings. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 1. The shadow of your, of your wings. Remember chapter 55. David said, oh, I wish I could take on wings. I wish I could grow wings like a dove and get the heck out of here. That's what he said. Verse, that's the Kenneth... Drake translation, I wish I could take the wings of a dove and fly away and get away from all my troubles. Want to get away? Remember that? He wanted to get away. He says, the wings I'm looking for now are the wings of God. There's this image of this protective bird, mother bird protecting its young under its wings, and it's a beautiful image. Jesus borrowed this one. In the book of Matthew, Jesus, Matthew 23, 37, when he's making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. You see, that's what God wants for all of us all the time. He wants us to come to him for our protection under his wings, but oftentimes we're not willing, just like the people of Israel back there. You know, our, our nation has been rocked by the shootings that have happened, El Paso, Dayton. It's all over the news. Every time people go out now, there's kind of that uneasiness of what has happened, and it's been a terrible story. But there was a beautiful story in some ways that came out. There's a story of the couple protecting their baby. I don't know if you saw that, but I want to read a little. There was a couple who were there in El Paso at the Walmart that day, and they protected their child. It says, Andre and Jordan Enchondo were expecting house guests for a barbecue last Saturday. It was supposed to be a triple celebration, Andre had just finished building their new home. The couple was celebrating their first wedding anniversary, and their daughter was turning six. Before the barbecue, they dropped by Walmart to grab school supplies and food for the party. 
But all their plans and celebrations shattered in an instant of violence. A man with a gun entered the store and opened fire, killing the Anchondos and at least 20 others in an attack federal prosecutors are treating as domestic terrorism and potential hate crime. Andre Anchondo died protecting Jordan, his wife. She died shielding their two-month-old baby, Paul, who was grazed by a bullet but survived the shooting. And you probably saw this on the news and the story of how the minute the shooting started, they were there, he protecting his wife, she protecting her child. That child survived, they did not. They passed away. But to me, it's just this picture of what God desires for us, the safety of being in his protection. Now, and to me, there's an even greater picture there of the gospel, how Jesus gave his life for our life. Just as the parents got in the harm's way, Jesus did that for you and me. He gave up his life to save us and give us life. And it's a beautiful story that came out of a very difficult time. So what David's saying, verse 1, it's God alone I depend on. It's not human merit. It's not human means. It's not a cave. It's not my own wings. But it's God that I'm trusting in. I trust God alone. I also trust God's character. Look at verse 2. I love this. He continues on. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. God most high. Hmm. That's God's name. El Elyon, God most high. God is the creator. He's the ruler of all things. El Elyon, the first time that name was used is back in the book of Genesis. I believe... Brother John preached on this, but I, I think, with Melchizedek. So here's the account in Genesis 14, verse 18 to 20. Abraham is returning from rescuing Lot, and he's met by this priest, Melchizedek. You're probably familiar with that story. But here's what Melchizedek says to Abraham. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to El Elyon, God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There's that name of God. He is God Most High. He's not distant and remote. That's not what Most High is saying. What it's saying is God is unhampered. He's able to do anything he wants. He is above all and beyond all. So he's able to send help, and he's unhindered in doing so. That's what David is saying. That's the God I'm crying out to. And he says, God's going to do three things for me, right here in verse 2 and 3. The first action of God, he's going to vindicate me. Now, I think the NIV does a little injustice here, so I'm going to go to the NASB and the ESV just for a second. The NASB says God accomplishes all things. I like that better. The ESV says he fulfills his purpose. God is at work. God has a purpose here. Nothing is getting in God's way. God is in control. I like that translation a little better than vindicating me. 
He's trusting God here, and he's seeing a purpose in this, and he knows that God is in charge of this. He's trusting him. God's at work. He has a purpose. The second thing that God does is he sends from heaven, and he saves me in verse 3. This, it's that image almost in his mind of, God, would you please send down some of those angels? <laughs> I could sure use some of them right now. God on high, would you please send help down here to me? My enemy, they're hotly pursuing me. That was the same phrase that was used last chapter, chapter 56. My enemy is hot on my tail, God. I need some help from on high here. So would you please send down some help? You know, there's really two aspects of salvation when we use that word. There's the salvation to God's favor. That's the picture of Christ. He saves us. He draws us into a relationship with God. That's salvation. And when we hear that word salvation, that's usually the first word that comes to our mind. We're saved by grace. But there's also the salvation from enemies and from evil. Saved to God into relationship, but there's also the saved from. And I think the salvation he's crying out for right now, would you please save me from Saul? Would you please save me from my enemies? And then he says, God not only sends his salvation, but he sends his love and his faithfulness. What a beautiful combination right there. God's hesed, love, and his faithfulness. The two of them really go together. In fact, in the book of Psalms, 24 times in the book of Psalms, we see love, hesed love, and faithfulness together. They're like joined at the hip, one of the commentaries said, and I thought that was pretty good. And here's why. Think about marriage. The two have to exist together. Covenant love, covenant faithfulness. When you go to a wedding, what do they do? They give vows. I am going to be faithful to you. Thick and thin, right? Richness, poor, you know, whether things are good or bad, sickness and in health. No matter what, I'm here. You can't really divide those two. And when we talk about God, his love and his faithfulness always go together because he's faithful to us and he loves us according to his faithfulness. That's his covenant love, never-ending love. God, please, I need a dose of your love and your faithfulness right now in this cave, Lord. Would you please send that? Why? Verse 4. I got a problem. <laughs> I'm in the midst of a mess here. I'm in the midst of lions, God. Now, it's interesting. Maybe he had in mind some mountain lions, maybe that were outside there in the desert that he had seen in his travels and his runnings. We know that in his past, he told Saul, he said, when I was a shepherd, I came up against a bear and a lion, and I took care of business, and I protected my sheep. So I know I can take down Goliath. Bring it on. I love the confidence in him. But he sees himself, he's in the midst of lion. 1 Peter 5.8, Paul knew this verse, or excuse me, P Peter, Paul knew it too, but Peter actually referenced it, 1 Peter 5.8. We have an enemy that's like a lion too, don't we? We know the verse. Be alert, sober, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. That's us, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. 
You know, David recognizes the power of words used by people that don't like us to hurt us. We all know that power. False accusations, people that gossip about us, people that say things that are just simply not true or harsh, condemning us. And David says, that's what I'm up against, Lord. I'm in the midst of lions here, and their mouths are sharp. They're taking me out. But right in the middle of that, verse 5, and this is a refrain that's going to be repeated in verse 11. And this is really the centerpiece of this chapter, verse 5 and 11. Look what it says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I'm in a cave. (laughs) I got lions around me that want to take me out. But God, there's a total shift in focus here from his situation to God. Looking out of that cave and seeing God all around him. Above the heavens. All over all the earth. What David is doing, he's using this literary device called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. It's when you take two contrasting words and you use them to describe an entirety. For example, I have searched high and I have searched low. Contrasting words, basically you're saying I've searched the whole place, the entirety, high and low. David is saying, your glory, Lord, it's out there, it's beyond the greatest heavens, but it's also filling this earth. It's everywhere. It's an entirety. It's above the heavens. It's to the highest degree possible. It's above the false gods who are supposedly residing there that these false teachers talk about. God, you're there. You're above all that. But it's also... Praise be, it's here on the earth. It's right here in the middle of this mess, down here, where I am right now. God, you're up there in all of your expansiveness, but you're down here with me. And that's the beauty of God's transcendence. He is so far above and separate and beyond me that I will never understand fully who God is. Transcendent. But yet, he's his eminence. He is with us. He is right here in the middle of our mess. That's our God. So he's so great and he's so much vast and beyond us, but he's so much involved in our lives. Above the heavens, over all the earth, God. That's where your glory is. It's everywhere. But then verse 6, look what he does. It's a refrain, but he goes right back to his issue, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 6. Oh, yeah. Let's go back to the enemy for a second. They got this net out there for my feet, and God, I was bowed down. Things were not going well. I was about ready to fall here, God. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit for my path. So if I was a bird flying, they'd had a net to get me. If I was a lion or some kind of animal walking along the ground, they dug a pit. They were going to get me there too, God. But look what he says. They have fallen into it themselves. So this, those four lines, it's interesting. They have this net. I was going to fall, God. I was bowed down. They have a pit, but guess what? They fell, not me. They've fallen into it themselves. And it's just this beautiful way. So in the middle of verse 4 and 6, we have verse 5. 
It's David's way of saying, look, in the middle of your situation, the lions in your life, remember God has them on a leash, those lions. And remember, we have a lion. It's called the lion of the tribe of Judah on our side. So forget about it. In the middle of 4 and 6 is verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. May your glory be over all the earth. It's David's way of saying, in the middle of the mess, may you be glorified, God. So God is glorified as we trust Him in our trials. God is glorified as we praise Him in our trials. Verses 7 through 11. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I love that phrase. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? It is. Love that. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. May your glory be over all of this earth. That refrain again. Isn't that beautiful? Don't wait for your circumstances to change before you praise God. This is intentional praise here in verses 7 through 9. David says, I'm going to praise regardless. Praise is a choice, isn't it? Worship is a choice. You know, when we come here on Sunday, worship is not something that our leaders up here draw you into. It's a choice you make to worship God and give Him all the glory and honor that He deserves. Please don't put it on somebody else to say, well, I didn't feel like worshiping day because, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, it's a choice. My choice to praise can be in the worst of places. It can be in a cave. But David said, I'm going to worship and I'm going to praise him right now. My heart, he says, it's my whole body here. My heart is steadfast. And he repeats it two times. Just like there's a double request for mercy in verse 1. There's a double reminder or a double confession of steadfastness. You know, sometimes we need to remind ourselves of some things. In spite of what's going on, God is good. In spite of what's going on, God is good. I'm going to remind myself of these truths. David's reminding himself of his steadfastness. He says, my mouth, it's singing. This situation, this cave is not going to keep my mouth shut, David says. I am going to sing in the cave. That's where the title, by the way, comes from. You're probably wondering that, right? Singing in the rain? No, I'm going to be singing in the cave, okay? Nothing is going to stop me. You know, there's something about listening and singing good worship music that just lifts your spirit. You know, I have in my car, I always have it on wherever I go. And sometimes I'm paying attention. Sometimes I'm not to the music. But there's times where maybe I'll be in a mood that's just not a good mood. And I'll hop into my car and the radio will just be on. And it'll be a song that just, boom, hits me. You've experienced that, I'm sure. Tears might even come to your eyes. Or you might go, wake up, dude. What's wrong with you? God is good. And music does that. It can lift our spirits. That's the book of Psalms. It's music. And that's such a beautiful thing. I'm going to awaken the dawn. There's a young man <laughs> who, I don't know why, but walks by our house on Hood Street 
anywhere from 7 a.m. to 7.15. It's always within that 15 minute period. He has a backpack on and he has earbuds in and he is singing at the top of his lungs. Maybe you could call it shouting and screaming more than actually singing. And it's usually music that I would not prefer to hear, just to, you know, some words that are not choice. But I can hear him, if you know where my house is, from the street in front of the motel where he gets off the TriMet bus. And as he's walking up Hood Street, I can hear him all the way from the street. And this morning, just to, you know, make sure that I remember him, he did it. It was about 7.10. I was up studying for my sermon. I was sitting on the couch, had the windows open, trying to cool everything down. I'm looking out on Hood Street. Who should appear? My friend. And he is awakening the dawn. I always thought he was being rude, but maybe he's saying, I'm just going to awaken the dawn here and sing at the top of my lungs and bless everybody. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. But David says, you know what? I'm going to wake myself up and I'm going to usher in a new dawn, a new period of grace, a new period of understanding who God is with my music. I'm going to sing like crazy. And he says, my soul is awakened. Isn't that beautiful? Sometimes I think we sleepwalk our Christian life. I think we just kind of go about the routine, the day-to-day, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes God says, you need to wake up. Your soul needs to be awakened. That can only happen with God's spirit, God's word, my brothers and sisters encouraging me. Those are the things we need in our lives because otherwise it's easy to get into the routine and the rut, right, of life. I need to be awakened. David says. Look at verse 9. He shifts from individual praise to international praise. I love this verse. It's like he's in a cave. He's shifting from God, would you please come and help me, to God, I'm going to praise you, to okay, I'm going to bust out of this cave and I want to see the whole world praise you. From the one end of this world to the other, all of the peoples. Do you have a desire that God's name be heard all over this world? That's what David's saying. I want God's fame, God's name, God's glory to be worldwide here and just blown out. You know, the Portugal trip, Pat got back from being in Poland. God's word is going on out there and people are coming to know Christ. We heard a report from Africa, from Ethiopia here recently of thousands of people that are coming to know Christ daily. I mean, it's crazy over there. They can't get enough pastors to come in and feed the people God's word because there's just so much going on. But God's word to the world, his glory. And it's God-centered praise, verses 10 and 11. He repeats the truth of God's love and faithfulness that he mentioned in verse 3. God, I need your covenant love, and I need your faithfulness right now. Look at verse 10. Great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 36.5 says the same exact thing. There's a song by Third Day based on Psalm 36. We did this last summer. To the skies, as far as we can see, your love and your faithfulness, Lord, I want to proclaim this. And then the repeated refrain in verse 11 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all this earth. In verse 5, David sings with a defiant faith this refrain. 
in spite of what's going on, he's almost defiant in his faith and saying, God, may you be glorified. In verse 11, it's a grateful love. He's just responding out of his love for God and understanding of who God is. In conclusion, there's a great quote by Alan Redpath, who is a British author and pastor, and here's what he says. There's nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. If it's come here to me, it's come through them, our Father and Christ. There's a purpose behind it. I can trust them. I may not understand it, but I know what's going on there. It's not why, but what. It's like the shepherd with the sheep. <laughs> why is he dunking my head under again? Why am I being thrown in this vat of this nasty smelling stuff? What is going on here? This is mean. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? A pastor friend said, at our church we talk about you need to have guts. He says, that's an acronym. I said, acronym? Really? What's that an acronym for? God's up to something. Guts. You got to have guts. God's up to something. What is God up to? He said, that comes from the book of John. Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees because he had healed on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. He had done it. Pharisees were very upset with him, working on the Sabbath. And Jesus took that word work, and he did a little interesting thing with it. He said, my father is always at work. But he didn't stop there, dot, dot, dot. He said, and so am I. My father is always at work. God's up to something. Always. Jesus is up to something. Always. So maybe you're in a cave. Maybe you're at the top of a mountain right now. Things are going great. Maybe you're going through this incredible meadow with all these great flowers, and you're singing at the top of your lungs. Or maybe you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, like it says in Psalm 23. Just remember guts. How's that? God's up to something. He deserves to be glorified. That's it. Amen.